Well, today we come to numbers. Ran it by Michelle, and she suggested we skip this one too. So, uh, <laughs> if you weren't here last week, she suggested that we skip Leviticus. And uh, I won't ask her about Deuteronomy this next week. But the Bible is one story in 66 books that reminds us that we have a problem and only God has the solution for us. And as we go through these books, <clears throat> you may be uh, here for the first time this year. Maybe been here each week, but what we're trying to do is move through the 66 books of the Bible because they do have one particular story, and that's the story of what Jesus Christ has done to resolve our problem of sin. And as we move through the books, God helps us to better understand who He is. He doesn't drop it all on us in the book of Genesis and say, This is everything you need to know. It's this progressive revelation as we go through Scripture that God allows us to better understand who He is. Last week we used the analogy of Pictionary. As you draw in Pictionary, the more you draw, the well, for most people, the more you draw, the easier it is to understand what you're trying to say. And God is doing the same thing here. And today we come to the book of Numbers. And when we look at this book, I want you to remember that you are a number and a name. Pew Bible, uh, page 202, if you want to join us there, 36 chapters. It would probably take you about three hours to read it. I'll try to summarize it a little bit quicker this morning. But as you come to Numbers chapter 1, verse 2, there's something very important is said there that we would probably skip over. It's called Numbers because you start off right out of the box with God beginning to number the people, and He'll take another census later on in the book in chapter 26. But it says, Take a census of the whole Israelite community by their clans and families, listing every man, what? By name, one by one. This was new revelation for the people of God. As they lived in Egypt for 400 years, they were never identified as anything more than a number, if even that. They didn't even feel like a number. They didn't feel like they counted, and then God brings them to Mount Sinai, and He says to them, you are a number, you count, and I know your name. So Jesus would say in John 10, 1, that he knows his sheep by name. He knows your name. Any of you kind of have challenges with remembering people's names? That means you're not like God, because God knows our name and he never forgets. The Bible lists over 3,400 names, reminding us that people matter to God. He names the people in there. Two of my favorites are found in Genesis 22, when it's talking about Abraham's nephews. Nephews named their brothers. The firstborn is Uz, and the secondborn is Buzz. I'm just waiting for somebody to name their kids here. Uz and Buzz. They're just kind of fun names. Well, the book of Numbers it says that God speaks directly to Moses 31 times by name. He doesn't say, hey, you. He says, Moses, as he speaks to him by name. And as the book begins, the book of Numbers, we find that God is taking those that didn't even feel like they were a number in Egypt. All that matters was the number of bricks that they produced every day. And he takes them and he assigns them names and they are put into tribes and they're taught how they will camp as they move through the wilderness in pursuit of the promised land. And right in the middle of the camp will be the tabernacle reminding them of God's very presence with them, the one who knows them by name. And each of the tribes are named as they are stationed north, south, east, and west around the tabernacle. So you're a number 
and you're a name. You may feel like you're nothing more than a number in the cog of culture, but you are a number and a name. You matter to God, even if you got picked last. As you think about the book of Numbers, there's three words that help us to understand the transition of how the book unfolds. Ready, aim, misfire. Pat Emmons was uh, an athlete in the 2004 Olympics in, in Athens, and he was an air rifle shooter. He was one of the best, they say, in the 25 years of watching this particular sport. He was going into his very last shot all he needed to do was hit the target and he would win the gold medal. He was that far ahead. So he aimed his rifle, fired, and hit a bullseye on the wrong target. And because of that, he dropped from the gold medal off the platform all the way down into eighth place. It sounds easier than we might suspect, but all of these uh, alleys lined up, the target at the end, 50 meters down there. They'd usually, he said he would usually use a scope to make sure he's on the right target, but you move just a little bit and you're on the wrong target. Well, the book of Numbers is that picture. It's a people that have the ready, the aim, and then they misfire in what God has called them to do. And their misfire is a warning to us. I bet if anybody heard of Matt Edmonds' story about the Olympics, and they're a shooter, I bet you, because they've heard that story, they won't do the same thing. It serves as a warning, a reminder to concentrate on the right target. And when we think about this particular experience in the book of Numbers, Paul would write in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6, now these things occurred, these events out in the wilderness of where the people rebelled against God, these things serve as examples to us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Friends, as we go through the book of Numbers, whether we understand it better or not at the end of this message, May we see it as a warning that we set our hearts on the right things, that we are aiming at the right target in life. Ready, aim, misfire. The ready comes in chapters 1 through 10. We've been through Genesis and Exodus. Exodus takes us right to that experience of which they come out of Egypt, and then we go into the book of Leviticus, and they're out there, and God is giving them direction and guidance. And here in the book of Numbers, the fourth book of the, of the Pentateuch, the five books that start the, the Old Testament, we find that they're at Mount Sinai. This is where they're located. And at the base of Mount Sinai, God continues to give them this reminder that they are set apart to be set apart. That sounds redundant. But God is saying, I have set you apart to be set apart from the rest of the world so that you might communicate to the world who I am. And he gives them, as he's setting them apart and preparing them, he, he is right now in the ready phase. They're getting ready to go into the promised land, and he's giving them that last ready. It's like a checklist before you go on a journey into the promised land. He reminds them about instructions of purity and the role of the priest and the fact that he would be right there with them in their midst. Ready is chapters 1 through 10. It seems to be moving in the right direction. But then come chapters 11 and 12. They began to move. They leave Mount Sinai. They have been there for a year. They've received the Ten Commandments. They've received their instructions. They've received their guidance. God has ordained them to be a nation, to be set apart. And now they're ready to move to the promised land. 
And as they began to move in that direction, we hear complaint after complaint after complaint. Some of you remember as a child when you were in the back seat of a car going on vacation. Some of you as a parent know what it's like to have kids in the back seat of a car when you're going on vacation. And you hear that, are we there yet? I'm hot. I'm hungry. I'm sick. She's bothering me. He's touching me. Four different times in the book of Numbers, we hear the people of God doing the same thing as they say they long for Egypt. They want to go back to slavery. One of the best stories you find in, in Numbers chapter 11 in which the people are complaining about the manna. They're so tired of this. If you, you've uh, uh, heard stories ab about this, then um, anyway, it comes to the point in which God says, okay, you want, you want some meat? I'll give you meat. When I was in college, uh, we, had a, a, we had this thing going in which we would try to get people to laugh while they were eating. And if we could get them to laugh and stuff would come out of their nose, we would call it a noser. Just, you know, they, they laugh so hard. Well, well, God says, I'm going to give you a noser. I'm going to give you so much quail that it's going to come out of your nose. Literally what it says in 1120. And when God says that to Moses, Moses is saying, whoa, 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 God, you're getting your, yourself out in front of your skis here. How in the world, we're in the middle of the wilderness, how in the world are we going to get that much uh, food, that, that many quail to come in here? And in, in 1123, the Lord says, is the Lord's arm too short? Friends, some of you need to hear that today because you wonder if the Lord's arm is too short for whatever you're going through. Can he address the situation in your life? Can he give you strength in the midst of the circumstances that you're facing? Can he give you peace when it feels like you're in nothing but a storm? Yes, because the Lord's arm is not too short. In chapter 12, here they are, they're moving toward the promised land, okay? They're moving in the right direction and they're complaining. Miriam and Aaron even complain and they begin to gripe against Moses. They're jealous of what's happening to him as the leader and they blame it on Moses' wife. But then Moses just says, Moses, Moses just says, I want to die. That's one of his go-to lines. I just want to die. See, the problem is he's up in the front seat and he's had enough of what's going on in the back seat. It's a week and a half journey from where they are at Mount Sinai to where they're going to be at Kadesh Barnea, but it seems like forever. But they finally get there. That's the ready part. God is readying his people and his people seem to be readying themselves by complaining about it. And then we get to chapter 13, aim. This is the moment they've been waiting for. They have been brought out of slavery four centuries worth. They've been established as a nation, given God's guidance to be set apart. They're promised this land, and now they're at Kadesh Barnea, and Moses puts together the final installment of the plan. They will send out 12 spies into Canaan to look over the land and bring back a report. It tells us in chapter 13, verse 2, that these are leaders from each and every tribe. I will tell you one thing I did. Many of the dumb things that I've done throughout life 
As a young pastor, I was preaching on this, and one of the things I was trying to emphasize is that when you do dumb things like this, you will not be remembered. And the fact that these guys' names are not even in the Bible, and I brought a blank check uh, from our checking account, and I held it up, so I got a blank check if anybody here can name the 10 spies that brought back the bad report. My emphasis was because you have Joshua and Caleb, everybody knows that. But if you can name the 10 spies because, and then I said, because you can't even find their names in the Bible. I am so thankful I was preaching to an illiterate bunch of people about the Bible because you do find their names in there. That was long before I was reading through the Bible every year. And all their names are listed there. They were a number and a name. But they chose to bring back a very bad report one small conjunction. In Numbers chapter 13, verse 28. Numbers 13, verse 28. Verse right before that, the spies say, it is indeed a land flowing with milk and honey. And then verse 28, but three simple letters, the turning point of the people, the moving from the right target to the wrong target. And all of a sudden, the people began to rebel. In verse 33 of that same chapter 13, they say, we are like grasshoppers in our own eyes. And that's when the misfire takes place. Chapters 14 through 36, we experience the 40 years of wandering. And we also have within there the preparation. So we have them with the ready, the aim, and then the misfire comes in chapter 14 when the people decide to rebel. So much so, Joshua and Caleb step forward and they say, wait, wait, wait. Yes, it looks overwhelming. But remember the quail? God's arm is not too short. We can take the land. And they're so irate that they want to stone Joshua and Caleb just for suggesting that. And so then God pulls over the car and he looks back in the back seat and Moses intercedes and says, oh God, please, please remember who you are. Friends, it's important for us to remember that God's wrath is as important as his mercy. If there was no wrath, we would never understand his mercy. There would be no need for his mercy. God is, is like a parent correcting their child with painful discipline and affirming love. I remember when I was growing up, we would use this phrase, but I'm just curious from your younger parents, do you ever use this phrase with your kids? This is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. Any young parents ever use that? Maybe that died with the last generation because it always hurt. And God says, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. We find it in Numbers chapter 14, 18 and 19. Now may the Lord's strength be displayed just as you have declared. This is Moses pleading and interceding. It's, it's beyond comprehension because these people have just ridden and ridden and ridden Moses back. And then he steps in and he says, Lord, you remember who you are, slow to anger, abounding in love. And he's quoting back to Exodus chapter 34 that, that God demonstrated his, himself through this description before. 
You forgive sin and rebellion. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. In accordance with your great love, forgive the sin of these people just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. It was repetitive, pardoning and forgiving. And God does. And he does for each of us. Some of us have a past in which we wish we could change, but we can't. There's just something about the past. You cannot change it. But you know, regardless of our past, we are redeemed through the blood of Jesus Christ. What a great, incredible gift. But they disobey. They disobey by trying to obey too late. Have you ever done that? They disobey by trying to obey too late. And so they see what's happening here, and they see what God is about to do to them. And so they say, okay, okay, we're in now. We're in now. No more complaining from us. We will go and take the promised land. And God says, it's too late. And they storm off to Canaan, and they try to fight, and they're completely routed in the process. God said, you told me you didn't want it, so I'm giving you what you asked. Those who have disobeyed will not see the promised land. Ready? Aim. We're right there. And they misfire, and just like Emmons shot that hit the wrong target, there were consequences to be paid, and they dropped from gold all the way off the platform. And for the next 40 years, they will wander in the wilderness until all of those above the age of 20, 20 and above, have died off. They move back into the wilderness that they were in, but now the wilderness becomes a giant cemetery. Some have calculated that they had a funeral every 100 yards as they traveled through the wilderness. At least 50 to 75 people died every single day. And that's the average. I wonder if there was a season in which God, nobody really died. And then all of a sudden, boom, 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 boom. And people started dying and people see the consequence of their sin. Something for all of us to see is notice how discontentment sets up disobedience. Notice how discontentment sets up disobedience in their life and in our lives. When we're discontented and we're frustrated and we're angry and we get bothered about the way life is playing out for us, it sets us up for disobedience. And that's why the Bible gives us the antidote of rejoicing. That's what Paul, Paul would say in Philippians 4.4. 4, rejoice always. And again, I say rejoice as we rejoice and give thanks to God. It, it brings back the discontentment so we're not so apt to be disobedient. Look at God's love and mercy. You see how God perseveres with his rebellious people. They have complained, they've disobeyed him, and now as they wander out in the wilderness and God says, you know, you're all gonna die. Can you imagine being some of those last guys? I mean, you're, you're in the last half dozen and everybody's just looking at you. Once you die, we can go in. Is today the day? And once that last one dies, they're in that preparation stage of going in. 
but I want you to see God's mercy in the midst of this, the way that he perseveres. Do you feel like God's given up on you? Some of us do, but God perseveres. What a beautiful concept. Because as you see that he is punishing his people by putting them into the wilderness to wander, and those that rebelled against him are going to die, even then to those, he reminds them of the instructions for purity. He reminds them of his presence with them. He reminds them of the festivals and the way that they will worship him. He doesn't just abandon them in the wilderness. Yes, he disciplines them, but he doesn't abandon them. And none of us are above failure. This is one of the most amazing stories in here, found in just the brevity of a few verses in, in Numbers chapter 20, verses 8 through 12, in which Moses is instructed to speak to the rock, and instead he strikes the rock and takes credit for water coming out of the rock, and God says, okay, you're out too. You're going to the back seat. You're not going in. None of us are above God's reproof. But see how God works. God uses even their enemies to bless them. You remember the story of Balaam and his donkey? That's in the book of Numbers, Numbers 22 through 24. Just a bizarre story about this guy being called in and he's supposed to be this diviner that's going to bring a curse on them. And everybody remembers the story of, of Balaam going and his donkey speaks to him. I've listed that on my little thing about the epitaph for my life. That's my epitaph. Just another donkey through whom God occasionally spoke. That's me. Just another donkey through whom God occasionally spoke. And in the midst of all of that, God takes Balaam, who has been brought in to bring a curse on the people, and God uses that to bless his people. Friends, when we follow God, when we are set apart to be his people by believers in Jesus Christ, even our enemies can bless us. In chapter 27, now it's that preparation time. More and more people are dying off, and God is getting them ready to go into the promised land of that younger generation that will take over. And the new sheriff is announced in chapter 27. Joshua is designated to be Moses' successor. And the rest of the book gives us special instructions for how they will go into the promised land, how they will establish their allotments for the tribes and the special cities of refuge that will be set up and the cities for the Levites. The mile marker to Christ, you go down any road, Route 66 has all those mile markers. As we go through these books, we want to see the mile marker that points us to Christ because everything in Scripture is an arrow pointing us to Jesus Christ. He is our source of salvation. And we find that in Numbers chapter 21, verse 8. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it on a pole, and anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. Now, what's the backstory there? If you can imagine, the people were grumbling, and they were complaining, and they were griping against God. And so God pulls the car over again, and he runs a bunch of venomous snakes into the camp. And these snakes are so dangerous that if they bite you, you will die from it. And the people began to plead to Moses. And they, they say, oh, Lord, forgive us. Do something. And so God gives the instructions for Moses to, to create this bronze snake, literally a bronze snake on a pole, hold it up, 
And this is God demonstrating and communicating to his people how they will find relationship with him through faith. Anyone who looks at the snake with faith that it will heal them, they will live. And that's what happens. But you know what's really neat about that passage of Scripture? We know John 3.16 so well. But do you know what John 14 and 15 say? John 3, 14 and 15? Just as Moses, Jesus speaking to Nicodemus, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. See, here's this bizarre story about a snake on a pole, and Jesus, right before he gives us the most famous verse of all in the New Testament, refers back to that story to say, I am going to be lifted up, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to be lifted up from the earth, and everyone who looks on me as they did back then with faith, they will be saved. Don't miss the tie-in. The serpent is Satan. Satan is a serpent. And he always brings death. Sin and death go together. That's why Jesus died on the cross to die for our sins. Sin and death always go together. And that's why Jesus came to redeem us by dying on the cross. What a great reminder that as we read through this book and we're like, okay, people out in the desert, what does that have to do with me? In the middle of the desert, millennia ago, God was communicating what he would do by lifting up his son that we might experience eternal life. Charles Spurgeon was converted by stumbling, literally stumbling into a primitive Methodist chapel on a snowy night. He didn't really know what he was looking for that night, and not many people were out. In fact, the pastor, the preacher for the, for the church wasn't even there that night. So a layperson got up, announced the text of Isaiah 45, 22, and he said, Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none else. And then he said, Look, man, look to Jesus. Spurgeon would later on say, he didn't have much to say. Thank God, for that compelled him to keep on repeating his text. He just kept repeating it. Just like they did in the wilderness, look to the Lord, and he was redeemed. And here's what Charles Spurgeon would say later of that experience. Oh, that somebody had told me this before. Friends, part of the mile marker that we find in the book of Numbers is not only do we look to Jesus, but we let other people know how they can look to Jesus as well. Because there's a lot of people out there that are saying the same thing. Oh, that someone would tell me. So real quickly, wrapping it up, finding yourself in numbers. Thinking, okay, I'm not sure where we fit in there, but a couple cool things. We're almost done. You are designed for God's blessing, and your sin will find you out. Two dynamics to hold intention. You are designed for God's blessing, and your sins will find you out. Numbers chapter 6, verse 24 and 26, we have that great Arianic blessing that so many of us know about. May the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord smile on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord show you his favor and give you his peace. Friends, we were designed for God's blessing, not for his curse. But if we don't receive his blessing, 
we will receive the curse because just as that famous passage is said there in Numbers 32, 23, Moses speaking to Gad, Reuben, and the half-tribe of Manasseh and saying, if, if you guys don't follow through on going with us into the promised land, because they said, we want our land on the east side. And Moses, is great, it's a great story there as you read through it. Moses just goes off. I mean, you can tell. He, he's, he's stressed. He's at the red line. They're just asking for some land on the east side. And all of a sudden, he just goes off on them. You know, you, wanna, you don't want to fight. You just want to be lazy. You want to do this. And he's ready to bring down God's wrath on them. And they say, wait a second. We'll go in and fight. We just want land on the east side. And then Moses says, okay, but if you don't do that, your sin will find you out. And the same is true for all of us. When we think of numbers, we think of a calculator, right? That's why we don't read it. It's just a bunch of numbers. There's a lot more than numbers. There's only a few chapters with numbers. But rather than thinking of it like a calculator, think of it like a mirror. It's a mirror that helps us to see ourselves for who we are. That we can find our identity in Christ just as Brock Purdy did. Win or lose the Super Bowl. Oh, he'd love to win. But even if he loses, his identity is secure in Christ. He is not Mr. Irrelevant, and neither are we if we are in Christ. Because as Christians, we are defined more by where we're going than where we've been. And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ, can I just take a moment to tell you what the storyline of the Bible is? Quite simply, we have a problem, it's called sin. God has a solution, it's called Christ. We must have our problem taken care of and only Jesus can do that. And our response to that information will determine the outcome of our existence both in this life and in the next. If you've never received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I wanna invite you to do so in the moments that follow as I lead us in a prayer. And for all of us as Christians, those of you that are here to worship, I pray that you are finding yourself in scriptures and allowing God to use you as a milestone that points to Christ. Let's pray. God, thank you for the book of Numbers that speaks to us. Even today, millennia later, the relevance of what is found in this book. Lord, thank you for giving us scripture that points us consistently to how we can have faith in Jesus Christ. Just like the serpent in the wilderness was lifted up and those who looked on that and believed, just as Christ was lifted up on a cross to redeem us from our sins, might anyone here today that has never intentionally chosen to believe that voice a prayer similar to this, Lord Jesus, I recognize that I am a sinner in desperate need of your forgiveness. Please forgive me of all my sins and become the Lord and Savior of my life. I surrender to you all that I am and all that I have, and I will follow hard after you the remaining days of my one and only life. Lord, we hear the words of Spurgeon once again. Oh, that someone would have told me that earlier. May we be the people that go about telling others about how they can find new life, eternal life, in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Love you all. Thanks for listening. Today we're going to end our service just a little bit differently. We're going to go back to the blessing that we find in Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 through 26. And man, I'm going to call on you to do something for me, with us, for our church, not just for me, but for our church. I want all of you as men now to stand up, and you're going to see these words up on the screen. And 
ladies and children, you just relax where you are because these men are going to proclaim a blessing over you, this congregation, our church, our families, individuals as people. And I'm going to ask you guys to do something that you typically do not do in this service at all, no matter what happens. I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. So as they would pronounce a blessing, they would raise their hand like this. And guys, what I want us to do is not mumble or stutter or stammer or quietly, shyly proclaim, but I pray that we will recognize that we are proclaiming a blessing over this group of people and that we will say it loud and proud. Are you ready? May the Lord bless you. May it be. You're dismissed. Thanks for being here.